0: Praise him with the cymbal, the harp, the lyre and the flute. We didn't have any idea that you could play the flute. Look at that. We were blessed by that. Thank you, Luke. That was awesome. Uh, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter six, starting in verse 19. Matthew chapter 6. we're going to be in 19 to 24 this morning. Matthew 6:19 to 24. In the 1940s, the Shell Oil Company was losing uh, workers left and right. They were drilling for oil uh, in Ecuador and a local Indian tribe known as the Wa'arani in an effort to keep these foreigners off their land were killing them with spears were putting them to death. And the Wa'arani were known as vicious defenders of their territory. They were known as a rather ruthless tribe. And so the Shell Oil Company petitioned the Ecuadorian government and they said, Listen, if you want us here drilling for oil, which the Ecuadorian government did, then you need to help us with this tribe figure out a plan to protect us and to, to sort of push them back from their land. So, as the Ecuadorian government and the Shell Oil Company put together a plan to try to keep the Wa'arani at bay, a, group of, a small group of missionaries, of men and women, led by a man named Jim Elliott, tried to make peaceful contact with the tribe. Having read about the Wa'arani years before, Jim Elliott felt led of God to be the person that brought the gospel to them, In the fall of 1955, five men in those missionary families, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Pete Fleming, made contact with the tribe. They were flying in an airplane overhead, and they were shouting out over the loudspeaker in the airplane peaceful phrases in their language to let them know that we come in peace. And they would drop down gifts in a pail, ...from the airplane to give to the Wa'arani tribe to let them know, we mean you no harm. In January of the following year, they landed on a a beach on the island, or or, or on the coast, and they made contact with a few of the members of the Wa'arani. And they began talking with them and conversing with them, letting them know that they come in peace. So that small group left and went back to their tribe, and the men camped there on the beach... And as they were there on the beach, they were shouting out phrases into the jungle in the Wa'arani language to try to entice them to come out to make contact, letting them know, we come in peace. On January 8th of 1956, several people from the tribe came to the men on the beach and killed all five of them. The question is, Why did Jim Elliot and his friends go to Ecuador in the first place? What would make them want to go to this group of people? There are billions of people on the planet. Many of them without the gospel. And most of them don't have murderous inclinations. Why not go to those people? Surely they need the gospel just as much as the Wa'arani over the next two passages. So for the next two weeks, Jesus is going to challenge us toward radical living. And I think it will explain the actions of Jim Elliot and the rest of his friends, I think it will answer those questions. And if the words of Jesus are to be believed in the texts that are in front of us for the next two weeks, then I think they will lead to a kind of radical living that truly confounds the world around us. With that in mind, let's look at our text in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. I like to remind us every week of the overall picture of the text that we're in because uh, I think as we examine the tiny details of the text and as we go verse by verse, as is our habit, through the text of Scripture when we keep in mind the big picture that's being communicated it helps us to understand those tiny little details that we're looking at. So the main concern that you'll recall in chapter 6 that Jesus is accomplishing in the Sermon on the Mount, and that He's questioning, is the motivation of the heart of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So if a Christian's Christian citizenship is not to a particular country, but to the kingdom of heaven, then his values or her values are going to align with the values of the kingdom of heaven. And in chapter 6, Jesus is checking the motivations of the works of righteousness that we do. What truly motivates us toward righteousness? When you give to the poor, the Christian doesn't give so that others will think of him more highly than they ought, but that, they get, that the Christian that gives to the poor is truly giving honor to God and he doesn't want us to be seen by other people. When a Christian prays, he doesn't pray so that other people will think that he is holy and supremely righteous. He is earnestly praying so that he will be heard by God and God alone. He, will, he prays to God his king. When a Christian fasts, he doesn't fast so that others will think that he's an amazing person. And wow, you really have it all together, don't you? You fast. That's incredible. Such discipline. But so that he can focus on his communion with God. The life of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is concerned first and foremost with what God thinks of his righteousness, not with what others think of his righteousness. What motivates us towards righteousness? So it should come as no surprise that we come to this passage this morning where Jesus deals squarely with our pocketbooks. Because the question that is being asked in this whole chapter is Who is your master? Who is your master? Now, for the hypocrite in the previous passages that Jesus calls out, the master is fame, attention, praise, other people, maybe, power, prestige. So, they pursue the praise of others. Because that's what their master tells them to do. But the righteous person, his master is God, so he cares only that he is heard and is seen by God alone. So for the next two weeks, Jesus is going to draw this discussion in chapter 6 to a close by challenging us in two ways. The first is this morning, where he's going to command us to lay up treasures in heaven as we've seen in our text. And the second is next week, where he's going to tell us what that then means. Where he's going to lead off the passage with, therefore. And he's going to tell us what that practically means to have our treasure in heaven. What does that mean for how we live now? This morning, Jesus gives us three metaphors that we're going to walk through. I'm going to walk through each metaphor and explain the text like we do every morning, every Sunday morning. But then at the end of each explanation, I'm just going to ask you a simple question. So this sermon is going to be organized just a little bit differently than it normally is where the points are made at the end of each explanation instead of at the beginning. Because I want to challenge you to reflect on your own life. I want you to think about your own heart. Because when it comes to serving a master, most of the time you know your heart better than we do. And so it would serve us better to ask questions and let you think about the answers. Jesus says to us here, starting in verse 19, look at the text with me. He says, Do not lay up for yourself yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now banking in first century Palestine was very much in a state of infancy. It was just really coming about. And, and often the banking center centers were not completely trusted to keep your money and to have them grow interest. Jesus will refer to putting your money in a bank Uh, Later on in another parable, but it becomes obvious in that parable that a banking center was not the first thought in someone's mind. Burying your money in a mayonnaise jar out in your backyard was still the best option. Okay, And so that's the option most people took. So putting your money in a bank in the first century wasn't of highest priority. It wasn't the norm. It wasn't typically thought of first off. So alternatively, one would diversify his investments... In various material goods, clothing was a pretty common investment, so that it could it would hold wealth pretty well. Um, other things that would be purchased would be like that would hold their value would be like precious metals, a lot like we purchase gold today. So Jesus is comparing the relative worth of earthly treasure versus the metaphorical worth of heavenly treasure. The difference being that earthly treasures are subject to decay, and in particular with clothing, they are subject to being moth-eaten. And if it doesn't decay, and if it's not moth, moth-eaten, moth if, if the material is imperishable like a gold or a silver, it's subject to being stolen. Not so, he says, with heavenly treasure. It isn't subject to these kinds of things. Now, That should be the mostly obvious stuff as we read the text. You read that and you see that on the surface. That that makes perfect sense. What is less obvious is how one goes about storing up heavenly treasure. And I want you to notice a key thing in what Jesus says about this that will help us understand how to store up treasure in heaven. Notice that Jesus isn't making a comparison between the way you save earthly treasure and the way you save heavenly treasure. If He was comparing the way you save, He would have said, just like you store up treasures on earth, in the same way store up treasures in heaven. But He doesn't make a comparison like that. He says instead, do not store up treasures on earth. But, or you might think instead, store up treasures in heaven. And that tells us something about what Jesus is getting at here. The storing up of earthly treasures leads to the lack of, of treasures in heaven. And vice versa. In other words, treasures in heaven are going to be had when we give away Earthly treasures in ways that magnify the name of Jesus. Let me say that again. Treasures in heaven are going to be had when we give away earthly treasures in ways that magnify the name of Jesus. There are several other places in Scripture where Jesus makes exactly this point. In Luke twelve thirty-two to 33 it should appear on the screen behind me. You can follow along there. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So here Jesus specifically says to sell your possessions and give to the needy and then he connects it to the same phrase that we have in our text this morning. Have treasures in heaven. Another one is in Luke 13-14 when Jesus says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Here again, we have a similar refrain that we are to give what we have away, and that we will be repaid in eternity. It's quite literally storing up treasures in heaven. So the same uh, concept is present in our text this morning. It's present in those two passages where Jesus is saying essentially the same thing. Both of those passages demonstrate a heart that is free from worry in regards to being paid back to what He has given away, but would rather bet on the expanse of God's kingdom in the world around Him. Now, I've mentioned several times the illustration of walking down a road with a ditch on either side. And we're in a similar situation this morning when it comes to money. Um, if If your Bibles only had verses 19 to 21 in them, chapter 6, 19 to 21, you would definitely, I think, be inclined to not save any money ever. To give every penny, what you, whatever you did get, to give it all away so that you live on absolutely nothing. But that would, I think, fall in one ditch on one side of the road. You're not more holy or closer to God or more righteous because you choose to live in abject poverty. That would be called the poverty gospel. It's also very popular in our world today as well as the prosperity gospel. But I think they're both on a ditch on either side of the road. The Bible tells us not to provide for our family is making us, makes us worse than an unbeliever. And not to save is against many, many Proverbs that we see in the book of Proverbs. That there are calls in the Bible to save and to provide for our family. And so those are good. However, there is a ditch on the other side of the road and it's also very dangerous for us to fall into. And that's to say that Jesus in this passage is not talking to me about money. That I, I, I'm fine. In fact, what, what is true about this passage is that Jesus is talking about the love of money, not just money. About the love of possessions, not just possessions. So the ditch, to fall into the ditch, would be to say Jesus isn't talking to me because I don't love money. The road that we want to walk down, which is sometimes a very narrow pathway, says, I have been and still am tempted by material goods. And Jesus here is talking to me. Now, the key is for you to search your own heart and to pray that the Lord gives you insight into your own heart to figure out what those ways are that you're tempted With that being said, Jesus is pushing pretty hard against our natural desire to hoard wealth. The Bible condones saving and condones providing for your family, but condemns hoarding. And so Jesus is asking his followers, and the first question I want to ask this morning, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Consider this first. If you're in this room this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you have made something or perhaps even someone the thing that you're pursuing. Something is your treasure. It might be a whole host of things. It might be career. It might be finances. It might be position. It might be prestige. It might be notoriety. It might be a number of other things. But something is your treasure. That's the thing that you are pursuing. Friend, let me warn you. You have sinned against God, all of those things that you're pursuing will slip away. What won't slip away is the fact that you have sinned against a holy God and you will one day face Him in judgment. God has provided a way of escape from that judgment through Christ Jesus the righteous. Who on the cross took the wrath of God, wrath rightly deserved for you and me. He took it on His own shoulders so that one day we might escape eternity and eternity in hell. Friend, if you haven't repented of your sins and confessed Him as Lord, nothing that you pursue in this life will help you on that day. So my challenge to you would be to stop now, repent of your sins, and confess Jesus as Lord and find Him as the treasure of your life. If you are in this room as a brother or sister in Christ, then this has something to say to you as well, to us as well. Are your finances characterized by a deep desire to see the kingdom of God expand in the city of Tuscaloosa and the rest of the world? Or does your bank account reflect an attitude that is more keen on fulfilling the temporary desires of your heart? You can look at the way that you spend your money, and you can tell where your treasure is. Because our lives constantly drift toward our treasures. So you can look at your life and the direction to which it's drifting, and you can see what your treasures are. And that's what Jesus means when He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, where your treasure is, there your life will drift also. These are the kinds of questions only you can answer. Where is your treasure? Jesus gives another metaphor, this time not of treasure, but of light in verses 22 and 23. Look with me. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! Now this is probably the most difficult part of this passage to understand, if you understand it correctly. Um, You may have noticed, if you have an older translation, particularly the older version of the NIV, that it says in verse 22, so if your eye is good, instead we read the word healthy, that's the way the ESV and modern translations read it, if your eye is healthy, or you might even have in some other translations, so if your eye is clear, that that word healthy, good, clear, the word that Jesus actually uses here is singular. If your eye is singular, not good, not healthy, not clear, but singular. See, the, the translators are stuck in an awkward position because literally no one in this room would understand what is meant by Jesus if, he were, if they were to translate it literally right there. To say, so if your eye is singular, so they put in good or healthy to give you the meaning and then let you search it out on your own. <laughs> Figure it out the rest of it on your own. So it's our job to understand what Jesus is actually saying here. He then says, if your eye is bad. But he's not saying if your eye is bad, like you have a bad knee. He's not saying like you have a bad eye, like you need to go to the doctor. It means, the word means wicked or evil. So if your eye is wicked or evil, Jesus is saying if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. Believe it or not, Jesus is using sight as a metaphor for our pursuit of treasure in this life. On the surface, it's really easy to understand the image. So on the surface, the image is the eye is like a window to the body. It lets in light, and by letting in light, you can see things around you. But if your eye does not let in light, you are blind. You cannot see. It's very simple. But the reason that he uses this as an illustration and the reason he uses the word singular to describe a good eye and wicked to describe a bad eye is because the eye can have a moral component to it as well. We do this in English uh, all the time, or sometimes. If someone, if a married man committed adultery, someone might say of him, his eyes began to wander. But that surely has no bearing on whether or not he was blind or had sight. If your eye begins to wonder, it really means something else. What it means is that you had sinful, wicked, evil desires for someone other than your wife. And so this is how Jesus is using the illustration of the eye here. This, this, this evil eye, this concept of an evil eye, is brought up in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 9, where Moses says this, Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you, say the, uh, and you say, the seventh year. The year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly. That's the same phrase that Jesus uses here. Wickedly is what He means. It's the same phrasing. He says, "If you and your eye look grudgingly on your brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. The evil eye that Moses is pointing to there in Deuteronomy chapter 15 is an eye that's wicked, it's an eye that's miserly, it's an eye that's that's greedy, that has lusts. John Stott summarizes Jesus meaning here and I think he gets it exactly right. He says just as our eye affects our whole body, so our ambition when we fix our eyes and heart, where we fix our eyes and heart, affects our whole life. Just as a seeing eye gives light to the body, so a noble and singular or single-minded ambition to serve God and man adds meaning to life and throws light on everything that we do. Again, just as blindness leads to darkness... So, an ignoble and selfish ambition to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth plunges us into moral darkness. It makes us intolerant, inhuman, ruthless, and deprives life of all ultimate significance. The challenge that Jesus is putting towards His hearers is to fix their eyes on the treasures of God. To fix their eyes on the treasures of God and refuse to let their eyes wander to the temptations and riches that this life, particularly in America, offers you. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Colossians 3:2 Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Brothers and sisters, the battle to fix our eyes on the treasures of heaven and the temptation to let them wander into the riches that this country, especially America, has to offer is a daily fight. Our eyes naturally want everything that we can see. Jesus calls the wandering eye evil. And if we permit our eyes to constantly be attracted to the riches that this world has to offer, how great will the darkness be in our life? If we're constantly pursuing the treasures that this world has to offer, how dark will things get for you? To what end will you stop? There will be none. We will continually want. We'll continually grab. We'll continually get for ourselves. It's about us. It's about storing up treasures in my life. And we'll have this insatiable desire for stuff. And we will have absolutely no reason to say no. Why would we ever turn it down? And once we get that new thing, its luster will wear off. And we're on to the next new thing. Jesus is pushing back against that mentality of life. A trap that many in the world have fallen into, and some even in this room. The question He's asking us, and the second question I want you to consider, is what, is, what treasure is attracting your eye what treasure is attracting your eye what is that thing you want what is that thing that you have to have we all have them every single one of us has them Jesus is challenging you to ask yourself what is your mind fixed on when you desire that thing Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that your purchases of anything enjoyable for this life or for yourself are always bad. But once again, we ask the question, does your bank account reflect a heart that is focused on the kingdom of God? What treasure is your eye attracted to? Jesus then moves to the final metaphor in our passage in verse 24. Look with me there. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the the culmination of the point that Jesus is making about money in this passage. And really in all of chapter 6. He's saying that it's impossible for a slave to have two masters. But the two masters that he has in his mind, one is God, it seems like at the end of this verse, one is God and the other is money. And he says that there at the end. He says that you either hate the one, God, and love the other, money, or then he changes the words and he says, or you'll be devoted to one, God and you'll despise the other money. Now, the word for despise that he uses there is not what we typically think of when we use the word despise, because the question that probably would come to your mind is, who despises money? Who thinks about payday and goes, ugh, it's payday again. I hate getting paid. I hate money. Ugh, gives me the willies, this whole money thing no one is saying that and that's not what jesus is saying the word that he uses there for despise has the connotation of considering the object of little value That's what that means. To consider the object of little value. In in this case he's not saying that you detest money or that you push it away but that you see it for what it is. That it's a means to an end. That God provides this money as a means to an end. The money has no ultimate value but it has the value that God gives to it. In this case it puts food on my table, puts clothes on the back of me and my family and it gives to many other people. It serves for the furtherance of his kingdom. But then the question becomes, how can I serve God with the money? How does the money that I get actually serve as the means to the end that God has given to it? How do I do that? I think it is in answer, the answer is in, uh, is in figuring out what mission God is accomplishing. What mission is God on in our world and I think the answer to that question is found in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 you can write that down I'll read it but you can write it down you've probably heard it you probably know it you've probably memorized it Jesus tells Peter and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it what mission is Jesus on He says it right there he tells you what mission he's on What mission is He on? He's on building His church. That's His mission that He's accomplishing in and through us. So the mission that He's on is building His church. So how do I serve God with the means that He has provided me? I use it for the building of His church. The primary means that Christ has established for preaching the gospel and for taking care of the poor is in the local church. We see that all throughout the book of Acts where people are selling the possessions that they have and they're giving them to the apostles in order to what? To distribute them amongst people that are in need and to further the sharing of the gospel. We also see this in 2 Corinthians uh, where Paul is taking up a collection from various churches to go on furthering the mission of sharing the gospel and planting churches around the world the mission of sharing the gospel and church planting and taking care of the poor takes finances. And God has provided these finances for us to not only put food on our table, to not only put clothes on our back and provide whatever else we need and to take care of our daily needs, but it's also to ensure that the church can continue going forth preaching the gospel and taking care of the disenfranchised. But the question that he asks and the last question that I want you to consider The answer to is, who is your master? Who is your master? I think what Jesus is saying in this text is abundantly clear. For us to say that we serve kingdom values, we must deny selfishness and greed and with joy give generously of all our resources through Christ's church toward the expanse of God's kingdom. Now, if Jesus was in a room with a bunch of pastors and somebody asked the question, who in here likes to preach on money? Jesus would be the only one with his hand up. <laughs> I don't know a pastor that likes to preach on money. But Jesus clearly had no problem with it. One out of every ten verses in the Gospels is, on, is Jesus speaking on money. 16 out of 38 parables of his deal with money directly. He clearly had no problem talking about it, but I, for one, would rather he be up here than me. I would rather be learning from him, trust me. It can be awkward, but my hope is that by expositing the text of Scripture and saying what he says, I don't overstep my bounds. And I say, this is what he said. So your problem is not with me. It's with the Scripture. There are a couple of direct lines that I want to draw from what Jesus said directly to our lives together as a church. When we come to apply this text to us as a body, there's a couple of lines that, straight lines that I want to draw from His words to our situation. Um, the first direct line is how we spend our collective money and the priorities that are reflected in our church budget. those The budget, those funds that we collect and we spend, should reflect two priorities, I think. A, a lot of priorities, but a, at least two prominent ones from this text. First, they should reflect a desire to plant churches and revitalize dying churches. They should reflect a desire... To plant churches and revitalize dying churches. Now, there are a lot of things that are going to be included in that. There's going to be training up of pastors. There's going to be training up of missionaries. There's going to be training up of lots of people to revitalize dying churches. That's going to mean that some of those pastors go into other churches where the church is dying. And so there's budgetary support that that means that it's going to have to be factored in there to support those dying churches. But if the building, if building the church, is Jesus' mission, and the local church plays a significant role in that, then it should be reflected in our corporate budget. The second thing that should be reflected in our budget um, is that our church budget should reflect a desire to care for the poor. In our society, that's going to present with it a lot of challenges In some cases, it's not our problem if we give money to a poor person and they go off and they spend it not on bills or on things that are of necessity, but on some other frivolous thing. They go and and spend it. Typically, that's not our concern. That's between them and the Lord. But when we distribute a, a, a set number of funds to people that are in desperate need, then, when people come in and take advantage of that need and are using funds that they actually don't need, and they're depriving people that do need it of funds that they need that we've set aside, then that is a problem. So there are—it's not just about setting aside money. There's also uh, uh, systems and things like that that need to be put in place so that we make sure that this is done wisely. Now, honestly, there are ways in which our that is reflected in our budget. Those two priorities are reflected in our budget, and there are some ways. That we still have opportunities, uh, we are are giving eleven hundred dollars a month towards a church planter in Portland, Oregon, and we do that every month, and that's a that's reflecting a desire to see the gospel flourish in Portland. There are organizations around Tuscaloosa that we give money to that every month that goes to to help take care of the poor. But um, there's also some opportunities that we have to continue to go further. And so over the years to come, you will hopefully notice more, a more intentional movement toward these priorities. So the first straight line from Jesus' teaching to our lives is uh, to our collective church budget. And, and my hope is, and my plan is, uh, over the next few years or over, over time... That our, our desires as a church, our heartbeat as a church, is reflected in our budget. And you will see that slowly. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Not even going to happen this next year of the church budget. But it will gradually, slowly, over time, move in that direction. Because our hearts are set on the kingdom of heaven. And so slowly that's reflected over time. The second straight line I want to draw from Jesus' own words here is to our, is to our personal finances. There are two numbers that I want you to keep in mind. The first number is $10,500. $10,500. That's our weekly required income to stay on budget. That's our weekly required income to stay on budget. The second number I want you to keep in mind is right at $700,000. I I rounded up just a little because if I gave you the actual number, you wouldn't remember it, and I want you to remember it. So $700,000. That's the debt that's left on the children's building next door. I think we should all take it as a personal challenge. This is me included. All take it as a personal challenge to ensure the success of this church in accomplishing the mission that Christ has set for it by continuing to care for its financial well-being. The pushback might be, I can hear it because I can hear it between my own ears. Well, he's a pastor asking for money. What else is new? In other news, water is wet. Ground is dry. Breaking news. <laughs> to that I would say, no, I'm not asking for money. I'm saying that Jesus' words have a direct impact on our pocketbook. And I'm asking, does your bank account reflect a laser-sharp focus on the expanse of God's of the kingdom of God through his church. If it does, wonderful. Praise God for you. Keep going. You're going to be tempted to do otherwise. Don't listen to that temptation. Keep going. But if it doesn't, it's sin. Confess that to him and make changes. I go back to the question that I asked at the beginning. What would cause a man to give up comfort, to be slain on the mission field? What would cause a man to give up what you can have here, to go to the frontiers of the mission field? and give his life? And I think the answer is simple. He treasured the expanse of God's kingdom in the hearts and lives of a faraway tribe. And where his treasure was, there his heart went. There his life went. I think he set his eyes on heavenly rewards And he never deviated from that path. In short, his master was Christ. And so he went to join Christ in his mission. Now, I know what you might say, but Jim Elliott didn't know that he was going to give his life on the mission field. But I think the heart of that man was found long before he went on the mission field when he wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott wrote that in his journal ten years or more before he was ever on the mission field. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He didn't care if he paid the ultimate sacrifice. It was worth it. His wife went with him. They actually married on the mission field. And after the death of her husband, Elizabeth Elizabeth Elliot, went back to the Wa'arani tribe that killed her husband and made contact with them. They accepted her into their tribe and they came to profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and repent of the murder of those five missionaries. Brothers and sisters, I know that Emmanuel Baptist Church will accomplish great things in the future if and only if We fix our eyes on the kingdom of heaven. We treasure heavenly rewards over earthly to make a significant impact on the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how difficult it is to hear. Your words in Scripture that we cannot serve both God and money. And I fear from my own heart and how inclined it is to treasure things that I can touch, that I can taste, that I can feel. That I can hear and see. It's so tempting. You know how easily my heart is drawn to those things. How difficult it's to hear those words in a country where money practically grows on trees. Where all of us are tempted in this capacity. It's a kick to the gut. But I pray that you would give us a picture in our minds of what the kingdom of heaven has to offer, of what your kingdom has to offer. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be so set on that that we would be the most generous people that could ever be found in society. That people would wonder why we give the way we do. Why we're so open-handed with our pocketbooks like we are. That we would be able to tell them our treasure is not here. That this is a means to an end. That the end is your kingdom. And that's far more valuable than anything that we can have here. Lord, I pray that you would bring that to bear on each of us as we go home, as we have conversations with our family members as we think about our bank accounts, that we would be challenged by you and your Holy Spirit to live on less and to do more for the kingdom through our finances. In Jesus' name, amen.